following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Um, we are over halfway through Philippians now. So you've done well on this journey. It's not a long book, but you know there's a lot in it and very dense at places. And so we're into chapter 3 this morning of Philippians. Wonderful passage for us to be able to sink our teeth into today. Uh, let me read this to you. We'll look at the first 11 verses this morning. Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. What a great passage, isn't it? Such a beautiful passage. Gee, uh, it preaches itself, really, but I'm still going to say something. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, some of you might have been here when, when I talked about that image of the, of the phone and the way that Jesus wants to be the operating system on your phone rather than an app on your phone. Do some of you remember that? And that kind of resonated with some of you, I think, probably because you're too addicted to your phones. And so, you know, any, any phone metaphor, we're like, yeah, I get it now. Yeah, if you can just make it like a phone, that's, that's easy for me. But I think it was, it was a way of trying to connect to that, to that idea that Jesus doesn't just want to be one part of our lives. He wants to be our life. You know, Paul says in Philippians 1, to live is Christ. Not to live involves Christ, but to live is Christ. And um, you're thinking about that phone, that picture of the phone, Jesus as the operating system. I thought about a story I saw in the news the other day. Some of you might have seen it. This teenager who passed away and her friends I think this was more of a reflection of her friends than her, but her friends decided that they wanted to make her headstone in the shape of a phone because she was always on her phone. And I think, I mean, I, I, I don't mean any disrespect to the family by this, but it, just reading that, there was a tinge of sadness as, as you read that. I'm sure that there was a lot more to that young woman's life than a phone. But when you see that image, it's kind of like that's what it gets reduced to. It's that, the phone. The headstone is the phone because she was always on her phone. And you just think, really? Is that it? Is that, is, that, is that what we want? To be the symbol of this life. And it just raises these questions again for us, doesn't it? What, what, what is at the center of our lives? Like what, what are we living for? 
What is at the heart of it? These foundational questions. And these are the questions that Paul comes back to again in this passage. He circles back to them again in this book. What is it at the very heart of your life? What are you truly living for? What is it all about? And what are you building your life upon? And I know there's many of us in the room who are already Christians, already followers of Jesus, but it doesn't mean these questions go away or it doesn't mean these questions are unimportant because even as believers, we can build our lives practically on many other things besides Jesus. And so maybe that image of the phone and Jesus as the operating system is another one just to carry in your heads as we go through this passage. And it might just be a metaphor that helps to ground some of the things Paul says here. So the context here in Philippians 3 is that Paul is talking about dealing with a group of people in in Philippi who have infiltrated the church and they're influencing the Christians in Philippi. Uh, We call them Judaizers. That name's not in the Bible here. That's a modern name that's been given to them. But the nature of this group is they were people who would come along and they'd say, right, if you want to be a Christian, here's what you have to do. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus. Yes, you have to accept him as your Lord and Savior. But that's not all. You also, in addition to that, have to keep the Jewish law. So you've got to keep the dietary laws. You've got to keep the Sabbath, Saturday law. You've got to keep the purity laws. If you're a male, you've got to be circumcised. And you've got to add on all of the requirements of the Torah, the Jewish law, on top of your salvation. So Jesus is is important, but he's not enough is basically what these Judaizers were saying. It's Jesus plus, 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 all of these other things. And can you, if you've journeyed through this book so far, can you imagine what Paul thought of that? I mean, you know, if there's one thing that's going to make Paul mad, it's people coming along and starting to add other things onto Jesus as a requirement for salvation. And so Paul has some pretty choice words for these. He actually uses a few choice words in this passage. But he says to these these people, he refers to them as dogs, He refers to them as mutilators of the flesh. That's a reference to circumcision. And uh, he says they are evildoers. Uh, This is not one of those issues where, hey, we can just agree to disagree and let's all be united as a church. There's lots of issues like that, but this is not one of them. For Paul, this is the heart of salvation. This is the heart of the gospel. This is Jesus plus nothing is everything. Now, the way that Paul responds to these Judaizers is really fascinating and What he does is to get biographical. So he gives us a little sketch of his own life. And we learn a lot about Paul in this passage. And he essentially says, I'm going to talk you through my CV. Here's my CV. It's like he hands us his resume. And he says, just have a look at that. These are all of my great accomplishments. These are all the great things in my life. And so we have this amazing insight into Paul's life before he became a Christian, before he became a follower of Jesus. And he gives us his pedigree and all the things that were defining characteristics of his life. And I want to walk through this with you because it's fascinating and it creates the the backdrop to what's coming next. So just look at what he says here from verse, uh, where are we? Uh, Halfway through verse four. If anyone thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, that's confidence in their own achievements, I have more, says Paul. So he's getting into a little bit of boasting here. Right, first item on his CV, verse five. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now, how many of you guys have that at the top of your CV? Not many, right? It's not the usual thing that we put at the top of the CV, is it? But for Paul, in a Jewish context, this was important because circumcision was the mark of the covenant. Going right back to Abraham in the Old Testament, this was the physical sign for males and therefore their families that they were part of God's covenant people. They were Abraham's family. They were God's people. They were in. And Paul's saying, I'm in. I'm in. 
And he's in by birthright. Do you notice that? He's like on the eighth day. So, you, I mean, you could always convert to Judaism later on as, as a male. You could always join later in life. But Paul's saying, I, my family was a Jewish biological ancestors of Abraham. We were natural descendants of the Jewish people. So right from the beginning, on the eighth day, and this is when parents would circumcise the boys, that's when my parents got me circumcised. And that was the mark right then that I am a member of the covenant people. So I'm in. Even though that meaning is largely lost to us in Western culture, for Jewish people reading this, they would have said, okay, Paul, right, that's all we need to know. You are absolutely a bona fide Jew, and you are part of God's team. You're part of God's family. So that's number one right there, circumcised on the eighth day. And then he goes on. What's next? Of the people of Israel. So that's essentially Paul saying, I am part of God's chosen people. It's a simple statement there that he is part of God's elected people, his chosen possession, the people that he bestowed his blessing upon and that God claimed as his own people in the Old Testament. Paul is saying, I'm in. I'm part of that people. I'm a legitimate member of the nation of Israel. And then item number three of the tribe of Benjamin. So it was really important for Jewish people that if they were legitimate Jews, that they could trace their ancestry back today. So this would, this would be like us chase, tra tracing our, our genealogy, our whakapapa, back and, and being able to, for Māori, being able to identify uh, your iwi uh, as, as a sign of heritage, as a sign of ancestry, as a sign of belonging. And this was Paul's claim to identity within the nation of Israel, that he could, if you asked him to, Paul could pull out the family tree and he would be able to show you, right, so my father's 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 father. Down it goes. All the way back was Benjamin. So Paul knew his tribe of the 12 tribes. He knew that he was the tribe of Benjamin. And that's, that was no meager tribe within Israel. I mean, that was the, the tribe of Benjamin. That was the tribe that gave uh, Israel their first king. It was King Saul. came from the tribe of Benjamin. So that was, that was a very highly uh, acclaimed tribe with a lot of status attached to it. In fact, if you were here, some of you here last year for the Mosaic series, we went through the life of Joseph. You remember Benjamin, precious son of Jacob. And even though Jacob loved Joseph, Benjamin was his youngest son, had such a special place in his father's heart. And so from the beginning, Benjamin has been important. The tribe of Benjamin is important. And now Paul is saying, that's my tribe. That's my people. So you know, it's, if, it's based, if you want to talk about ancestry, if you want to talk about lineage, Paul says, I've got it. I am the cream of the crop, tribe of Benjamin. I can show you my family tree. So he's just building this picture of his identity here as a good Jewish person. Uh, and then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And that, that, that would be the equivalent of us saying, I'm the real deal. I'm the real McCoy. Right? I'm the, I'm the real deal, says Paul. A Hebrew of Hebrews. True stock. True Hebrew stock. He says, not like my mother was a Hebrew and my father was some other. But no, both mum and dad were Jewish people, biological ancestors of Abraham. I am a Hebrew through and through. It is Hebrew blood that runs through my veins. That's what Paul is saying. Then in regard to the law, Paul says, a Pharisee. And so Paul, before he met Jesus, he was part of this group known as the Pharisees. And they were people absolutely committed to living and upholding and teaching the Jewish law, the Torah, the law of Moses. And they were meticulous about keeping the law to the point of the ridiculous and the absurd a lot of the time. In fact, sadly, the Pharisees end up focusing more on just the external parts of the law than the heart of the law to love God, which is why they get in so much trouble with Jesus. But they loved the law 
more than anyone else. And Paul says, that's who I was. Through and through, I was a law-keeping Israelite, and I was part of this group, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the cream of the crop within Israel. They were the religious leaders. They were people who are highly esteemed. They were put on a pedestal by other Jewish people and looked up to as teachers, as guides, as sages, as the source of wisdom and teaching and knowledge, much like senior pastors today. No, not really. <laughs> much, much greater than them. Uh, but these within the nation of Israel, they, they really were the, the, the leaders of God's people. And people would come and learn from the Pharisees. And so for Paul to be a Pharisee, that was like a badge of honor. As Paul saying, that's, that's my status symbol right there. That tells you everything you need to know about me. I was in this elite squad called the Pharisees. And then he keeps going. Uh, verse 6, as for zeal, persecuting the church. Now, when you hear that word zeal, it's got a particular meaning. We think uh, zeal today and we think, oh, if, if someone has zeal, they're really passionate. Um, but no, that's not what it meant. It, to have zeal in those days meant that you were willing to enact violence on your enemies. You were so passionate about what you believed, you would use violence against those who didn't believe what you believed. And Paul was so passionate about the law, and he was so passionate about the purity of Israel, that he believed it was his God-given duty to try and wipe out anyone who led Israel astray. And guess who he thought was leading Israel astray? The church? Jesus? Yeah, that whole crowd. He thought that they were a plague upon Israel, that they were compromising the purity of the people of God. And so Paul made it his mission to try and stamp out this Jesus movement however he could. Um, in his zeal, he went from house to house. And we know that Paul was a persecutor of the church, but just try and picture what that actually meant. You know, ripping families apart, dragging off dad, putting him in prison, overseeing people being beaten, overseeing in some cases people being stoned like Stephen. Paul was there. Overseeing Christians being murdered, tearing apart families, tearing apart marriages, tearing apart people's lives, doing whatever he could to squash this church and to, and to stamp out this toxic Christian thing that was just a plague upon the land. And that was Paul's mission in life before he met Jesus. And he genuinely believed that by doing that, he was pleasing God, possibly even earning his righteousness by, by having this zeal, such zeal for God, that he'd take up a sword against God's enemies, and he believed Christians were God's enemies. So, you know, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul doesn't hold back from saying that. He could be so embarrassed of that and, and so ashamed of it, but he actually puts it out there so that we would know who he was. So, as for zeal, persecuting the church, and then as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So, Paul, I mean, that's a pretty big claim to, claim to make, isn't it? As for the law, Paul says, I was faultless. Can any of you say that? Uh, as for keeping all God's laws, one word, faultless. Hello? It's certainly not me. I mean, 613 laws there were in the Old Testament, and Paul's saying, I was faultless. And, and, and I guess what Paul meant was that if he broke one of those laws, he would then make the appropriate sacrifices to have restitution for breaking one of those laws, which was also a part of keeping the law to offer the appropriate sacrifices. But Paul was meticulous. His life was the law, and he believed that by keeping that law perfectly, that he was right with God. He was in good standing with God and good standing as a member of the nation of Israel. Faultlessness before God based on the law. So that's Paul's CV. That, that is Paul's pre-Christian CV. All of his great achievements, all of his accolades, all of his accomplishments. 
And then look at where the story goes. Verse 7, but that is the hinge that the whole passage swings on. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That's extraordinary. Paul's saying all these things, it's like an accounting metaphor. He says all these things, they were on the prophet side of the ledger for me. Prophet, 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 Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, law keeping, zeal for God, all of those things. I thought that was all prophet. And now I'm shifting every single one of those things over to the loss side of the ledger. Every single one of them. Why in the world is Paul saying this? What in the world has happened to make him take such a radical shift? Well, Paul met Jesus. That's what changed. Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he was blinded by this light and he heard the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he was confronted by the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. And in that moment, everything changed. And Paul suddenly realized every single one of these things that he had built his entire life upon was utterly worthless because it didn't count for one iota before God. It didn't count for a single thing before God. It counted for Paul. It counted for his contemporaries. It counted for his culture, but it didn't count for God. Didn't mean a single thing for being right with God. In fact, what Paul came to realize is all of these things that he thought were getting him standing with God and righteousness, all of that had been flipped on its head now. All of this identity as a Jew, that's not the way that you become part of God's chosen people anymore. It's through faith in Jesus. Being the Hebrew of Hebrews, that's no longer the means of being part of God's family. Now it's being united to Jesus being a Pharisee, being a teacher of the law, that doesn't matter a, a, a bit anymore. What matters is Jesus. Having this zeal for the church, for persecuting the church, that's the opposite of what God wants now because the church is his chosen people now. And having this righteousness that's based on the law, that's not the way to be righteous anymore. This law that Paul had built his whole life upon, that's no longer the means to gaining acceptance before God. Now, the only way to be accepted by God, the only way to have right standing before God is in and through this man, Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus and Jesus alone. And compared to him, Paul just realized all of this other stuff is just, well, I'll tell you what he says of it. Some of you know what's coming next. He uses an interesting little word here, Paul. In verse eight, he says, what is more, I consider everything a loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. Now, the Greek word there is the word skybalon. Can we all just say that together? It's such a wonderful word, skybalon. One, two, three, skybalon. Now, that's the closest you will ever come to swearing in church. Because that's the closest the Bible gets to swearing. It's the closest Paul gets to swearing. It's close. It's not technically a swear word, but basically the word means excrement. The word basically means dung. It means refuse. It means garbage. It means excrement. I know we don't like talking about this stuff in church, but let's be honest, there's other words I could use that are worse. So I'm trying to mind my language a little bit this morning. In your heads, you can imagine if you want to use a stronger word, but Paul is saying all of the stuff that I thought was so amazing is Skybalon. It is a big pile of you-know-what. That's what it amounts to. 
Can you, can you see what he's trying to say? Like Paul is reaching for the language to try and tell you what utter rubbish all of that stuff was. He doesn't dance around it. He just says, this stuff is just nothing. It's less than nothing compared to Jesus. Now, just think about this in terms of your own life. I mean, you're, obviously your CV looks a bit different to Paul, but just think about your CV. Think about all of the, the great identity markers in your life and the great badges of honor that you wear and the status symbols that you have. What, what are the things? Just think about it for a moment. What are the things in your life that give you a sense of significance? And don't just say Jesus because it's the right answer, okay? I want you to be honest. God knows, okay? He sees your heart this morning. You, you, you honestly think about this before him. What, are the, what, are, what really are the things that give you significance? Maybe it's your job. Get a real sense of significance from your career, from doing what you do, using your talents. That, that, that's fine. Using your skills, using your competencies. And that gives you a sense of importance. Uh, maybe it's the things that you own. It's your It's your house. It's your car, your cars, your batch, your boat, your jet skis. All of those things are the things that give you a sense of importance. Maybe for you, you've got a bit of power in your circles, and you're known as a bit of a leader and a bit of a captain of industry, and you've got some influence, and you've got some status, and you've got a bit of a reputation. And that kind of gives, that, that feeds something in you, doesn't it? That gives you a sense of value, gives you a sense of identity, kind of tells you who you are. Uh, maybe it's something in your past, great achievement that you've had, great sporting achievement or a business achievement. There's something that's happened, and it, maybe it's a while ago now, but you still hang on to it. And for you, that's the thing. That, that, that's me. That's my great accomplishment. That's the trophy on my wall. You know, that was, that was the big deal for me. Beach Haven Tennis Club, Boys Intermediates, first, you know, whatever it is, most improved player. That's the only trophy I got. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you connect the dots in your head. What are those things for you that give you identity and status? And you know what Paul would say about those things? You know what he'd say, because he's told you, right? All of those things are skybalon. All of those things that we think are so important and that your neighbors think are so important and your friends think and our culture tells you. And so, well, they must be important, right? Because that's the here and now. All of those things are a big steaming pile of you know what. That's what they amount to, all right? That is what they are worth in God's eyes. That is what they amount to, to be able to achieve anything of spiritual, eternal significance. They are nothing. They are less than nothing. I know you hold on to them so dearly. And I know you're going to email me this week and tell me, but you're demeaning my work. You're demeaning my sporting achievements. You're demeaning my you know, intermediates tennis trophy. You know, all these things. These are important things. I'm not demeaning your work. And if I am, it's not me, it's Paul. Okay? And, and it's not Paul, it's Jesus. But the point is not to demean your life. The point is to lift up Jesus, right? The point is not to say all these things are bad in themselves. I know your job might be fine in itself unless you're doing something immoral to make money, but your job could be perfectly fine. The point is hold it up before Jesus and then see what it's worth. Hold up your, your studies before Jesus. Again, I'm not saying the letters after your name aren't important, but you hold them up before Jesus and see what they're worth. All of your great accomplishments, all of the status symbols of culture that you've got going on, you hold those up before Jesus and then see what they're worth. The point is, those things can't do what you, what you want them to do. They can't give you your identity. Only Jesus can. Jesus is the only one 
who can truly give you significance. It doesn't come from what you do, what you achieve, how much money you've got, how much financial security you've got. It comes from whether you know Jesus or not and whether you are united to him in faith. It comes from being part of his family and being saved by his grace alone. It's the only identity that we need. That's where your significance comes from. It doesn't come from all of these things that you've done. It doesn't come from really trying hard to be the best in your field, your sport, your industry, your whatever. It comes from knowing Jesus, your value, your importance, your identity. He is the only one who can really truly give you those things. And if you're still trying to find your identity in other places, it's a losing battle and it's going to leave you empty and hollow and lost. And you can be in that space even as a Christian. You can turn up here in church, you can pray the prayers and sing the songs and still in your life, day to day, be running after all these other things, building your life upon all these other things. And the Bible says, worthless, worthless, utterly worthless. You've got to put those things in their place. It's a pile of dung compared to the beauty and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The problem is we are so distracted by these things that we've just stopped looking at Jesus and we've lost sight of just how incredible he is. We've got to start turning back towards him. It's like that chorus. Do you know that old chorus that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus? Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now what that should have said is, the things of earth are a pile of, you know what, in the light of his glory and grace. But close enough, right? Just think about those words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's exactly what we don't do most of our lives. We don't turn our eyes upon Jesus because you're too busy looking at everything that's right in front of you. And so am I. I think about all the things I've got to accomplish before the end of today. That's what's in front of us. And we've got to start turning our eyes from those things to look at Jesus. This is not just something you do in church. It's something you do every day. You say, I'm going to take some time to turn my eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And where do we see Jesus? We see him in his word. We see him in creation. We see him through the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But we've got to look to him, fix our eyes upon Jesus. This is what some of you need to hear today, is that you are not taking the time to turn your eyes off all of these worldly things and fix your eyes upon the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And Jesus would say to you this morning, I just want you to spend some time turning your eyes upon me. And, and you'll naturally shift perspective as that happens. You will naturally see the, the, the real value of all of that other stuff as you turn your eyes upon him. Because as you look into his glory and his grace, the things of earth, they lose their shine. All those bright, shiny things that we surround ourselves with and we think are so valuable. We spend our lives trying to accumulate all this stuff. When you really look fully into the eyes of Jesus, they lose their luster, don't they? They lose their shine. And you realize, I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by the nail-pierced hands. And so Paul gives us this one really simple statement, and I want this just to sit on your heart. In verse 10, five words. I want to know Christ. Just take that much. 
I want to know Christ. And Paul was a Christian when he said that. So he's not saying, I'm a non-Christian and I want to become a Christian. He's saying, I'm a Christian and yet all I want is to know Christ. That's my life. That's my heart. That's what I want for you, my church family. I want you to be able to say, I want to know Christ. You may already know him and you may already be saved, but can you say that? All I want is to know Jesus. I want to know him a little bit more. I want to know him a little bit more tomorrow than I do today. I want to know him a little bit more next week than I do now. I don't want to be back here this time next year and feel like, oh, I've just kind of, you know, I don't know him anymore now than I did then. You know, I, I want every day, I want to know him. I want to walk a little bit more closely with him every day. I want to draw a little nearer to him every day. I want to be filled with his spirit a little bit more every day. I want to see his glory a little bit more every day. I want to know his resurrection power a little bit more every day. I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, if that's what he calls me to do, a little bit more every day. But I want to know Christ. Is that your heart? And some of you are here and you're saying, no, it's not my heart, but I want it to be. Some of you are here and your heart has grown cold. And so you're not there. But you're saying, I want to have that desire. It's like it's just over the hill. I can't quite reach it. I can't quite see it. And you know what God would say to you? He would say, it's okay to want that desire, even if you don't have it yet. Sometimes we want to want. Does that make sense? Sometimes we desire to desire. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. You say, in all honesty, this just feels like a world away from where I'm at, but I want it. I don't naturally have that desire within me right now to know Jesus because I've drifted so far from him, but I want it. I want to want Jesus. I desire to desire Jesus. And God will take it. If that's where you're at this morning, you just bring that little flicker to God. You bring that little flicker of a flame to God and say, God, all I've got is a little flicker. But would you fan this into flame? Would you take just the beginnings of desire for Jesus? And would you fan this into a flame of love where Jesus becomes the blazing center of my life? God, that's what I want more than anything, but I'm, I'm not there and I don't know how to get there. You just bring your flicker. Just bring that flicker to him this morning and you let him start fanning that into flame. So uh, here's a little exercise that you can do just to get started this week is to sit down sometime before next Sunday and make a list of all your greatest achievements. All the great trophies, all the certificates on your wall, all the letters after your name, all of the things that you've prided yourself upon, and maybe the things that you, uh, the hopes and plans and dreams for your future. And then one by one, you just go through those and make sure no one else can hear you when you do this, okay? And you say, my job, sky belong. And maybe you need to say a little bit more than that. Maybe you need to say, my job, sky belong compared to Jesus in view of knowing Jesus. My academic pedigree, sky belong compared to knowing Jesus. My house, I worry so much about, sky belong compared to Jesus. One by one, you go through. And you speak the truth over those things and you put them back in their place and you lift up Jesus and let him reclaim his place at the very center of your life. Let me finish with the words of the old Puritan John Owen who wrote this book, Communion with the Triune God. And he talks here about the beauty and the glory of Jesus and what it means to really behold him. He uses Paul's words, but in another way. I'll finish with this. 
You know how unwilling we are to part with anything that we have labored and beaten our heads about? How much more when the things are excellent which we've beaten our hearts about? But now, when Christ appears to the soul, when he is known in his excellency, all these things have their paint washed off, their beauty fades, their desirableness vanishes. And the soul is not only content to part with them all, but puts them away as a defiled thing and cries, in the Lord Jesus only is my righteousness and glory. May we be able to say those words with sincere hearts before our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, as we sit before you this morning, we're convicted, we're challenged, we're under the conviction of your spirit now, God, and there's a heaviness to that, but we trust, God, that you are pruning us. We trust, God, that even in this moment, there's a sense that you're disciplining us, but I thank you that your word says you only discipline those you love. And God, you're putting your finger on some things in our lives even now that we've made too much of. Our hearts have become attached to earthly things, God. We've run after these things, even if not outwardly, then inwardly. We've craved them. We've coveted them. We've envied the people around us that have them. We've wanted everyone else's lifestyles. We've fixed our eyes on things that have no eternal value whatsoever. And God, as we sit here this morning in the presence of Jesus, we just see those things for what they truly are. It's rubbish. And God, I want to pray that the perspective we have in this moment wouldn't be lost. We all know, God, before you, how easy it is going to be for us to walk out these doors today and go back to exactly the same way of thinking that we walked in here with. I want to pray in the name of Jesus that you would give us your eyes to see these things for what they are and to lay aside what needs to be laid aside and to say, God, to you with all of our hearts, I want to know Christ. That's all we want is to know you, Jesus, the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings, becoming like you in your death, that one day we might attain to the resurrection from the dead. God, would you do that work in our hearts this morning? Jesus, would you take your rightful place on the throne of our lives? Be the center. Be the very life within us, we pray. Shape us and mold us, Jesus, and bring us to our knees in worship of you. We pray it would all be for your glory, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.